Thank you, Jessica. Well, good morning. We have graduated out of August 2017 into September 2017. Can you believe it? And what a beautiful day it is today. We're very, very blessed. And I think about as Jessica was playing, I was just uh, admiring uh, the beauty of the day and, and also realizing that as what we enjoy this, there are others, a few states over, that are still immersed. Their possessions and their homes and their land is still immersed in water. Well, today, because it is the first Sunday of the month, our tradition now is to do something a little different. And we've been studying the Psalms on the first Sunday of the month. And also, something we've done for many years is also enjoy the Lord's Supper together, commune with God through Holy Communion. Today is the 12th sermon on 10 Psalms that we have enjoyed this year. And I'm, unless God stops me and turns me in a different direction, we'll continue in the Psalms for our Communion Sundays into uh, 2018 as well. I have thoroughly enjoyed, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface to the Psalms, so I think we'll keep going. This morning we're going to look at the psalm that scholars through the ages have entitled the doorway to the book of Psalms. So there's a psalm that opens the gateway or opens the doorway to this beautiful compilation of poetry and music and prayers uh, and emotion and desire and love and so and, and tremendous wisdom. So this psalm is is the gateway to that. And the psalm that we're going to look at this morning is Psalm one. So the first psalm opens the door to the other psalms. And then they would also say the last psalm of 150 is basically the, the book closes with a hallelujah chorus, because if you have ever read that psalm, the psalmist cannot stop praising God. Praise Him, praise Him, praise Him, praise Him for everything that comes to His mind. So we have this gateway bookend, and then at the end, perhaps we'll do Psalm 150 at some point. You have just the, the, the uh, cacophony of hallelujah and praise. Well, why would the scholars through the ages think of Psalm 1 as a doorway to the rest of the beauty of the Psalms? First of all, obviously, most obvious is because it is the first psalm. But it also sets the stage for everything that we find in the Psalms because it talks about the estate of a man who is blessed. And it also compares what it means to be blessed up against the fate of those that walk in a path of wickedness. But they also say that Psalm 1 is the gateway to the book of Psalms, because of the power that is found in there to teach God's people what they can do to really, really bring forth the transformation and change in their hearts. Have you ever thought, perhaps you've looked at other people's lives and they have claimed to be believers and you haven't seen any change and you've wondered about their salvation. Well, more importantly, perhaps we've looked at our own lives and we and we think I, I want my life to look what I say, look like what I say I believe. I, I want to live out. 
I want to make daily decisions and have this daily dependency on the God that I say that I have entrusted my soul to. Perhaps there's sometimes where we get to this point where we think, I'm just not changing. Why am I not being transformed into the image of Christ? What can I do? And maybe we're looking at Scripture. We're having our devotions. We're praying those prayers, and yet there is no change. There's something in this psalm. Timothy Keller even calls it the secret. And I always avoid using that word as if there's secrets that you don't know about. But he calls it the secret to just deep life transformation. And that secret that we're going to look at today, it's not a secret anymore if it's in God's word, right? It's purposely revealed. But the method is what the psalmist has found. And it is meditating on God's word. So that's the big picture of where we are headed this morning. He's going to tell us what makes the difference between those that are so entrenched in the in the person of God and perhaps those that have more of a surface life or a surface relationship, those that tend to be swayed by the things up here as opposed to being Deeply rooted and grounded, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 3.17. Deeply rooted and grounded. I wonder where we find ourselves <clears throat> this morning. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted near streams of water. That bears its fruit or yields its fruit in its season. And his leaf or its leaf never withers. And all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's, a, there's just a, an obvious contrast between the blessed and the cursed, really, or the righteous and the wicked. And there's a discipline here that this blessed man has adopted as a way of life. And that is what has made him different. That's what's made him stand apart, if you will, from the rest of the world in some cases, or definitely from those that do not seek after God. So the first psalm really kind of paints this beautiful picture of what a man's life looks like when he's blessed and how he achieves that blessedness. And really, it's something that we all long for as humanity. We all long to be blessed in one way or another. We want we want to find favor with from whatever God we worship or we want to find favor in this life. Anybody you talk to anywhere around the world wants it to go well with them. And this is how the blessing has come upon 
the psalmist. Look at the, the picture that it paints for him. His meditation, the result of his meditation of loving and adoring, cherishing God's word is that metaphorically he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water. What does that mean? It means that he is being constantly nourished by something underneath, under the ground, a sublevel. So the things up here in this world that take place, this stratosphere, you might say, uh, the, 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 the cold and the hot elements that he's exposed to, uh, the droughts, the floods, the emotional sways, the pains, the tragedies, that he's affected by those, but it doesn't take him down. It doesn't rob him of his vitality because he is constantly being fed or nourished by his God, that he is building his life upon him. So you see, no matter what happens in this aspect of our lives, when we're plugged into, uh, when we have that, for lack of better terms, that IV, we're being fed, we're being nourished constantly by this pure source of God, then the things that happen up here do not take us out. They don't determine how we're going to react. They don't determine, do we change our set of beliefs now because it doesn't look like this has worked for us. They're rooted and grounded so that that strength is always there and that spiritual vitality is always there. And so the idea is that it's it's meditating on the very word of God that enables us to live these kind of lives. It's that, it's that deep rooted sustenance and source that God provides for us in order for his children to live before his face, to live in his glory, be a part of his glory all of their lives. So many of us are, are blown away. So many of us are blown away by the difficulties that come into our lives. And we, we're going to have difficulties. Just this morning in the office at prayer, I read, I think it was Psalm 60, verse 3. The psalmist um, he says, God, you have caused us to see hard things. And, and, and we stagger like we had, like we were drinking wine. I mean, there's the idea is that you, you get news or you sometimes you see things in our news or read in the paper. Or you just hear from word of mouth things that just, they almost buckle your knees. They cause you to stagger. There are hard things in this life. And so many of us get get. Blown away by the winds of life or washed away by the floodwaters or the droughts that come. Spiritual droughts, droughts for health, droughts for relationship. And the reason that that happens, it's not that we aren't affected, but I'm talking about just washed away and blown away with it. And the reason that happens is because we have put our roots into surface things. Our, our hope was, were, was in surface things, our joy our sustenance, our, our security, we're in surface things. And so basically what we do is we live lives according to the weather forecast. Uh, well, it's going to be rainy and drab all week, so I guess I'm not going to live this kind of life that week because it's too discouraging. I'm going to have to wait for a sunny day to have a good attitude. 
have to wait for a sunny day. I'll have to wait for better times to to uh, experience joy again. This idea here is that no matter what's going on up here, no matter how bad, no matter how good we are tapped into this foundation, this bedrock that is God. So literally right now, as you know, there are tens of thousands of people who just lost about everything in these floodwaters of Harvey. And you've seen you've seen it on the news. You see the, the distressing pictures. I mean, there's the good side to it of the heroism and the unity that's taking place. But the fact of the matter is that there are people whose lives will never be the same based on what has just taken place. They had their life. They had their house, their vehicles parked in their garage, their four-wheelers around back. They had their family members, uh, their schools that they attended, and their clubs and their jobs, their hobbies, their recreation, their friendships, all, all of these things that made up their lives. And, and that's gone uh, in many cases, and even precious lives were lost. So there's no going back. And now will be the stage of rebuilding. But there's a sense in which it's never going to be the same. Maybe homes can be salvaged. Maybe committees will start up again in schools. But there's a sense in which it will never be the same because parts of that have been washed away. The question is, is the strength and the hope of their souls washed away with the flood waters? Is the is the is their joy has their hope been washed away? Was it dependent upon those things? And now that life that the life that I built for myself is gone, can I I can't be myself until I rebuild that back like it was? What gets washed away with the things that happen above ground? Will will they bounce back? What were their souls anchored in? What is their portion of life? And how many times do we find ourselves, often not consciously, but we just seem to fade into putting our hope and our strength in things that are perishable. We just, we, it's almost like drifting. We don't stay in the lines. We, somehow we just drift. We go through life and we drift. And the next thing you know, I have just sunk my roots into something that is really not dependable, but I think it is. And that's why I've done it. The person that has these kind of roots like this psalmist, it's possible to be anchored in such a way that no matter what we have or don't have, no matter where we are or where we aren't, uh, no matter what we um, what we lose or gain, we are the same person. We have the same Beliefs, the same joy, the same attitude about life. It hasn't changed because we believe in a God who doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. It's possible to be that anchored and that secure because God is just always that real to us. So let's think about this and take it a little further. Suppose we're in a season of rejection. I know that in our culture right now, 
something else that you can't escape. It's all over the news. Here we are going through the pain and the grief of separation and disunity as a nation. We have demonstrations. We have racism and hatred raising its ugly, ugly head and all of the destructive destruction that comes with it. You have people that are feeling very, very threatened. They're feeling like they're not being heard, like they don't have a, a place. They're, they're rejected. The, the way that they thought life needs to be or should be is not that way. So there's a lot of feelings of loneliness and rejection and a lot of threat and people threats and people lashing out. Or perhaps this is a new school year and and for whatever reason you didn't get in with that cool group of friends or you lost your popularity. And now you find yourself on the outside or maybe something has transpired at work and and um, the same thing is has happened for whatever reason people are rejecting you. But because your roots are in Christ, because your true identity, the person you are, the things that you stand for is in the unchanging God, then the way people think about you or how they receive you or reject you doesn't take you down, doesn't determine what kind of life you're going to live because you're in that constant communion with God. It doesn't define you, doesn't control you. Doesn't cause you to decide, well, then I'm just going to be angry, mean and bitter and lash back. But you still are connected into the person of God. These are kind of, these are things that we face that rock us as humanity or possessions. You think about not so long ago, the recession where I I talked to people, elderly people that had these retirement funds that they were absolutely looking forward to and depending upon and were partially, uh, if not completely, wiped out. What do we do when the things that we have looked for depend upon is gone? What do we do if we have stockpiles of money that we thought were going to carry us through and now they are gone? There are circumstances that are not in our control. That happen. We make our plans, but God directs his steps. And so our heart, when these times come, can be so tightly knit to God that we were trusting in him when we had that stockpile. And we're not trusting any differently now that we don't have that stockpile with or without the stockpile. We serve the same God. And so we're not shaken. We're not wiped out. We're not distraught. Concerned, contemplative, yes, but not blown away. Perhaps we have or are in the midst of facing um, some kind of tragedy in our lives, maybe brokenness. These things visit us whether we want them to or not. Loss. And maybe it's something that you just never imagined when you pictured yourself living your life out into the future. You never imagined that would ever happen to you. It's just way too unlikely. Rarely, rarely happens. And then the unlikely happens. And you find yourself in turmoil. You weren't prepared for this. But you realize you're not alone. Because though things change out here, you have the same God that has not changed. He's just as trustworthy as he ever was. Just as loving and 
And the fountain of grace continues to pour out just in a different way. God doing different things in our lives so that they take different shapes. See, we need to change. God doesn't need to change. He's perfect. And so he brings things into our lives that will change us in a good way while we are all at the, at the, concurrently. We still are in that bedrock and not shaken. Only shaken enough to change in a good way, but it's never these things don't come into our lives with the intent to put us down and make us miserable. It's always to lift us up to the knowledge of God. So that is the the power of meditation when we give ourselves to delighting in the word of God. So if we if we find ourselves at this point where we just can't shrug things off anymore, we can't process them. We can't handle them. They cast us down and we don't know if we're heads or tails anymore. Perhaps, perhaps we have sunk our roots into the wrong things or perhaps we're not quite as deep into the things of God or into the kingdom of God as we thought we were. So the psalmist also gives us description of the opposite extreme. So the righteous man is that man who's planted by the streams of water. Not so with the wicked. The wicked are like chaff that are driven by the wind. Verse 4. What is chaff? Chaff is that part of the grain, the plant, the fruit that is no good to us. It's the part that after you make the harvest, you just get rid of. And the way in that day, of course, we have equipment and machinery today. But in that day, the old fashioned way was you took you took the grain, the wheat or whatever, the barley, and you kind of just beat it against something. And then you throw it up into the air because the, the part that you want has weight. To it, it has sustenance. The chaff, just it's dry. There's nothing there. And so the wind actually blows it out of your way so that you are left with the good fruit that you want. But that's the idea of the chaff. There's, because there's nothing living in it, there's no weight to it. It just gets blown away with the wind. And that's what happens with the wicked. They, they don't have substance there to hold them anywhere. To keep them rooted or grounded. Just like uh, there's no living material, if you will. This is exactly like Jesus' parable of the rock and the sand. At New Covenant Fellowship, we build on the rock. Because God's word is trustworthy. It's solid. It's honest. It's true through and through. As opposed to building on the sand. It looks like a great idea at the time. Might be easier. But when the unthinkable comes, then we find ourselves with nothing. The wicked get swept away and swept away and swept away. Like, can't help but to say it, dust in the wind. Now, if you are anywhere near my age or older, you will remember that song, Dust in the Wind by Kansas. I love the song. Now, I heard it before I was a believer, but it's actually a very profound song. Not only did I like the voices of the group. But I like the words and uh, the idea is it's a profound message, but that we're we're meaningless. We're, We're in this narrative of existence that's happening, but we have no stake in it. Don't 
Don't try to hold on to anything and grow roots because it'll just crumble right before you. He says, before I even open my eyes, I'm dreaming. But before I even open my eyes, my dreams are gone because they're just meaningless. And so he the, the psalmist there is saying, we're just like dust in the wind. We just get blown away with we're just along for the ride. And so don't even bother trying to plant yourself. Life is all meaningless. Now, that, that's a true conclusion if you don't believe in God. If you don't have the Christian faith, that's actually an accurate depiction of what life really is. And, and I appreciate that honesty in that psalm. Now, the, the, the thing about it is it's very, very profound. And why even sing about it if it doesn't have any meaning? If there is no meaning, why be so pr- profound in the song and share with us that life has no meaning? Can you be profound, prophetic, and yet there be no meaning to life in existence it doesn't make any sense but that was a neat song and that's the natural conclusion so that's the that's the uh, the metaphor of the chaff the wicked there's no life material to weight them down and to ground them so what exactly is meditation sounds good that's what i want for my life how do i make that happen in my life well what is meditation I'm sure you know meditation is it's it's to contemplate, it's to mull, it's to to um, muse over truths, the way life works, the way God says life works. It's uh, to cogitate. It's thinking deeply about what God has written, it's personalizing it. It's seeing it's in its broader Spectrum and it's personalizing it down into our lives and in our hearts. It's all of that. You're going over and over and over what God has written in his word. And it's in your head. And the um, literal root word has to do with with groaning noises, utterings. And in that day, not everybody had Bibles like we do today. You can just open your Bible and turn to whatever book and chapter they didn't have the written word like we do, so they memorized it. And they'd have, to, they'd have to memorize it and find a method that they could get it into their heads deep down so that they'd never forget it. Because if they, they forget it, they don't have the word of God. And you've got to find somebody else that happened to memorize it and hope that they memorized it correctly. So, so they would go over and over again in their heads and mutter it. And, and so that's the idea behind it. But this is more contemplative here. It's, it's more than just memorization. It's putting it down into your heart in a way that you will not forget it because now it's a part of you. That you will live it. So it's the kind of deep thinking perhaps some of us avoid because it's hard work. Wouldn't surprise me one bit if most of us here knew more about Eastern meditation than we did about biblical meditation. Because... Where do you ever in our culture hear about biblical meditation? I can't remember the last time I've heard anything about biblical meditation. But you can watch movies, TV shows and everything. You'll know all about Eastern meditation. The force is with you. Watch the Star Wars movie. The Eastern meditation is actually the exact opposite of biblical meditation. Eastern meditation... You want to empty your mind of your rational, logical thoughts because they will get in your way. They will impede you 
of discovering the truth that of pantheism, that God is everything and voila, you are God. And so you want to find your inner divinity and connect with the everything God. And in order to do that, you have to blot out what I would say. You just got to kind of deny and blot out what's really happening in your life, reality, in order to get into this realm of unreality. Now, some people, um, when this became very popular in our nation, they had a hard time getting rid of their real thoughts. And they were tripping, tripping over them. And so you got into the whole drug culture where you'd say, now I don't think about anything. And they would go on trips. Oh, I get it now. But uh, you, you couldn't do that in real life because you had you had responsibilities in life. The Eastern meditation is to emp- empty yourself and your mind to try to get into this higher consciousness. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It is about filling your mind, packing your mind as full as you can get it with what God has said to us in his inerrant, infallible, holy scripture. You don't empty your mind at all. You fill your mind. You, you think intensely. You, you think furiously about scripture. You put your mind up against it as hard as you can. You do what you have to do. To get it into your head and down into your heart so that you believe it so intensely. You are absolutely determined to live it. You want to live it. Because you see that this is the best way, possible way for my soul to be blessed. There is no greater way out there. There's no other secret for my soul to find its true meaning and purpose. I I find it in the living word of God. And we become convinced of that. So we make these great efforts. We're speaking God's word to ourselves. And we're speaking to ourselves about God's word. Meditation. We make these efforts because we delight in it. We we recognize, the psalmist has recognized that whenever he comes to God's word and meditates it, he finds his soul richer. He finds the true luxuries that God has given us in life. And so he wants to go back time and time again to keep enriching his soul with the spirit of God and the truth of God. So much so that it becomes a part of his being. What the New Testament, of course, would say, conforming to the image of Christ. It's not letting things stay up here. We are in a Christian culture of Insights. Who doesn't love a biblical insight from Holy Scripture? I love biblical insights. I love to hear something that I hadn't heard before or something put in a different way. But how many of us take that and we think that's the blessing and never do anything with it? Meditation takes it and does something with it. Not just as enthralled of it as an insight, but takes it. I want that insight in here so I live it. It doesn't just stay cognitive. We apply it into our own lives so that it becomes visible. R.C. Sproul says that this psalmist actually is, wants God to tell him what to do. Now, how many of us avoid or resist 
God telling us what to do because we kind of know what he's going to tell us. We already know we're wrong. We don't want God speaking into our lives. He might say something to us, which means we don't get what we want. And here's the psalmist saying, God, I want to hear from you. I want you to tell me what to do in every sphere of life. I, I want every crumb of your truth to affect me because you're only good and it, only good can come out of it. No matter what you tell me, only good can come out of it. What you love changes you. He delights in God's word. You can't behold true beauty and not be changed by it. Otherwise, we don't really love it. What you love has this, this, this property about it that changes us. And it's not just can't be just an infatuation that comes and goes, but this lasting change. So Timothy Keller says uh, meditation is taking God's truth Pressing it down into the heart until the heart is convinced of it and changed by it. We're talking to God. We're talking to ourselves. We're asking ourselves questions. Puritan John Owen writes this. If we settle for mere speculations and mental knowledge about Christ as doctrine... We shall find no transforming power or efficacy communicated unto us thereby. Sorry, he lived a while ago. But when our affections do cleave to him with full purpose of heart, our minds fill up with thoughts and delights of him. Then virtue, that's change of character, will proceed from him to increase our holiness and sometimes to fill us with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So it starts with God's word and then and then deep thinking about God's word. And then we ask questions about it. What does this mean? And what is this saying to me? If I took this one verse really, really seriously and I believed it with all my heart, what changes would it bring about in my life? What would I do first when I woke up in the morning instead of what I do now? What is this speaking to me? How does it teach me to praise God? What is it teaching me about the glories of God? What are what examples are in this verse that are set before me to follow in that way? Is, is there a promise here that I can claim that I can sink my teeth into? Is there a command that I can say yes to that I can obey that I can submit to? How would it change my living and conform me to the image of Christ? Is there something in me that's resisting this truth? If so, what is it? And what steps do I have to take to get rid of that resistance so that God can flow in me and through me? See, this is what brings the transformation. We all long for it. We all long for it. But this is how it really the nuts and bolts. This is how it really takes place. It's this kind of. Uh, guttural wrestling and absorbing of God's truth, letting it define us, letting us, letting us submit to its uh, formation. It's what really brings the change. It's time consuming. And a lot of us will think, well, I can't possibly make uh, enough time to do this kind of think deeply, uh, deep thinking, think deeping. Think deeping. So anyway, 
it's not something that we just do in the mornings at our devotions. This is the kind of meditation. So he says, what else do we learn about? He delights in it day and night. In other words, it's not a one-time thing. It's not something that we can do in the morning and then not come back to into the next morning. The psalmist is making God and his truth. He's constantly bringing it into his mind when he's at work, when he's at school, when he's at home with the kids, driving down the road. The psalmist drove probably a, a Porsche or something because he was blessed. He was prosperous in all that he did. Uh, whatever he was doing, he's bringing God back to the center of his intent of his attention. Meditating day and night is not in conflict or tension with what we do in our daily responsibilities. It's not like you put God to the side so you can go to work or you put God to the side. You stop thinking about his truth so I can just I can deal with this parenting issue. It's bringing God into the center of our attention and all we do. It's it's intention is us harmony. God, that's how we live God's truth out. But you know how our minds can fade and how we can quickly not think like a Christian. When we are immersed in a world that doesn't think like a Christian, we find ourselves responding wrongly, returning evil for evil. But it's bringing God back into the center of our attention and our thinking, not just one time a day, quiet time. So God's word is given to us with the intention that it's going to penetrate our very being, saturate our very heart. So look at the result as we begin to wind down here. Look at the result of the blessedness of this psalmist. The first thing that you see is that he's fruitful. He yields his fruit in its season. If you ever met someone, maybe you know a Christian in your mind, that's a fruitful person. Whenever you come into their presence, you go away blessed because they are so filled and saturated with God that no matter what you tell them or what is going on in your life, they bring it back to God. So you might go away encouraged, um, refreshed. They, they granted to you what you needed in the moment, inspired, maybe by being in their presence, you're Hungrier for God than you were before. It's, it's that fruitfulness. God is using this person to bring fruit into the world. John Piper describes it like this. Their mouth is a fountain of life. Their words are healing and conviction and convicting and encouraging and deepening and enlightening. And being around them is like a meal. This is the effect of delighting in the word of God and meditating on it day and night. You will yield fruit in season. I've often wondered sometimes in my Christian process of growth, there's people that I've known that they're just like a rock. And the way you can be like a rock is by building your life on the rock, by being having that taproot down into the rock. And you and you see things happen and you wonder, wow, how can they not be shaken by this? And this is why. So bearing fruit in its season. Secondly, they're, they're hardy or durable. Are, are you a durable Christian? Are you a hardy Christian? Its leaf does not wither. Are we withering Christians? Some, sometimes we might be green and sometimes not. Based on circumstances. The church is... Sad to say, the reality of our culture right now is that 
not just our individuals withering, but churches are withering. And if you thought it was that way 10 years ago, now it's even worse. Churches are withering. But in spite of all the harsh conditions that happen above ground, this individual doesn't wither because of his rootedness. He's continuing to delight in that source of God's word. And it's an endless source of grace, an endless source of the sustenance that he needs to bear fruit in this world. Reminds me of the verse you've heard it many times in Habakkuk three. Here's the here's how that mindset is lived out. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. What can your response possibly be with atmosphere like that? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. His joy doesn't depend on the livestock and the vegetation and the harvest and the money in the bank. His joy is in the Lord. That's a durable, hardy Christian. And then lastly, another effect is prospering in all that he does. He prospers. Is this the prosperity gospel? No, no. It's not saying if you just meditate a little bit more, a little bit more, you have more money in the bank. You have that car you always wanted to drive, the clothes you always wanted to wear. Other people get sick. You won't get sick. Other people get flooded out. Your house won't have any water in it. It's not that kind of prosperity. Now, there are we do live in a cause effect world. There are consequences to evil and there's consequences to good. And sometimes we find God's favor in this way because we're walking in obedience and it has an effect. There is a reward to obeying God. And so there are seasons when we're prosperous. But there's also if you read the rest of the Psalms, God does not. God does not uh, pr- always protect the godly ones. God does not always protect the great saints of the faint. Faith from this kind of harm. So that's the big picture. He's not always there to spare his most faithful people. It has it's written with the idea of the end view in mind. Whenever you hear about the prosperity, it's what does the end of that person's life look like when you look like it at it in those terms and you see what happens to the wicked and you see what happens to the faithful, the faithful. This is just a taste of what's to come of the kingdom of God. I mean, all, the, the best news you could possibly hear in this world, that's just an inkling of what God has in mind. But the worst possible thing that you could conceive in this world is just an inkling of what awaits the wicked. So who really prospers in the end? William Plummer writes, the ungodly, however moral, or amiable or confident of their good estate are yet destitute of spiritual life, of God's favor, of holy tempers, of well-grounded hopes. The fact is they have much to weep over and nothing to rejoice in. Paul sums up their case in Ephesians 2.12. They lack five things. They are without God, without Christ, without the church, without the covenant, without hope. A human arm separated from the body of which it's a member cannot live. It must perish. 
So a soul separated from God must lose all resources of permanent happiness and in the end be filled with all misery. Now here we live together. We share the same sun, protected by the same laws, share the same produce, possessions, conveniences, roads, towns, cities, share the same places of worship, the same recreation, same friends and family members, perhaps even share the same bed. And yet the day of separation will come and the sheep and the goats will be eternally separated. Whatever warmth and grace they now have will be completely taken away. Just as the picture of the Blessed man should warm us. This should alarm us. This kind of fate. God is so good to tell us the truth of what happens in the end and and what we might do to get at one place or the other. He's so good to bring that before us. So the psalmist measures the value of where people will be in the end. Who is the most prosperous or who is the blessed In the end, and obviously, it is the righteous. We have to, righteous have to forsake the ways of the wicked. One last quote from William Plummer as we bring it to an end. And this, you can get a lot of mileage. This is William Plummer. I don't know if you remember what, when I went to the T4G conference last year, this year in Kentucky, I brought home a free book commentary of the Psalms, it was literally this thick. And so I was reading it and I don't I don't want to read it because it's well, the guy writes a lot. He says a lot of words, but I decided I was going to read it. Um, It's hard work. I was going to read it and there was treasures in it. Psalm one. But listen to what he says. Jesus Christ has often called his friends to sacrifice ease. Sacrifice fame, earthly goods friendships, and even life itself. But blessed be his name, he never asked any man to defile his conscience nor to tarnish his honor by acts of meanness. God will never, he will ask us to give up all kinds of things. He will never ask us to sin. He will never ask us to do anything. He will never require of us to compromise in that way. It's only good. It's only pure. It's only holy. What a profound way to look at that. So where are we planted this morning? What's going on in our lives? How do we respond? Where, what are we rooted into? Are our roots deep enough? Are we believing fervently enough? Are we willing to take the time to bring God into the center of our attention day and night? To set our affection and our delights in God's words so that that true deep transformation that we long for will take place. The challenge is that we would give ourselves to the king and his kingdom and muse over his truths in such a way that we would bear fruit And bring him glory and live in the amazement of our amazing God. May God bless the preaching of his word.